Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Mike Viola back to the program. Mike is going to be a familiar voice for some, and probably for some. This is the first time they're meeting you, Mike. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm the head of analytics at the Foundation for Economic Education. If you guys aren't familiar with me, we put out uh, economic-related content and run classroom programs for younger people to keep people informed on on the world of classical economics and free market principles. I'm also a contributor at Young Voices. Okay. And I look, I lean on the Foundation for Economic Education just about on a daily basis, just to kind of get a feel for what's going on and to learn things that I didn't know. Case in point, I'm looking at an article you wrote for RealClearMarkets.com about um, how market competition is improving credit cards for everyone. Now, Mike, credit cards are a mixed blessing, right? They're convenient enough. We can spend ourselves into trouble if we're not careful, but there are some real advantages to having them as well. Talk to me about, uh, talk to me about this opinion piece in the New York Times earlier earlier this month that made the claim that um, credit card reward points programs are being paid for by the poor. How, how exactly was that supposed to work? Sure. The insinuation there, and it, to be honest, it isn't even always terribly clear in the piece itself, but um, the idea was that wealthy people are getting absurd cash back or travel rewards on their credit cards, while poor people with paying with debit cards or poor credit cards without rewards or in cash are subsidizing those by paying higher interchange fees. Um, You you, you might already know the concept, but the idea of an interchange fee is when every time you swipe, some percentage of that cut is going to both the card network and the issuing bank. Um, So uh, a bit of that cut, let's say 3% is is pretty standard, um, is say, going to Chase Bank, and some of it mm-hmm. is going to the Visa network itself, um, taken out of that portion that is going to the retail, to the uh, retailer. And so that's presumably reflected in the price you're paying. And the idea is the people who are paying with methods with without some sort of reward perk attached to it are paying a little bit more when you net out those rewards that wealthier people are receiving. I thought it was just kind of a convenience fee because that's really, um, I resisted using plastic for many, many years. But once I got started, it was like, I I do it because it's so darn convenient. So I can totally understand how, you know, an extra fee can be tacked on there. Well, for your convenience and ours, you know, we're going to take a little percentage. Talk to me about uh, what incentive do do credit card companies have to to take care of the people who are, are putting things on their credit card? Well, so with those interchange fees, it might sound the way that it's framed in the article that um, lower income people are just footing the bill, but uh, these companies need people using their payment networks and you incentivize them to do so with better rewards, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of silly, but a very modern problem is like, you know, oh, I have five credit cards and which one is my grocery store credit card and which one's my restaurant credit card because they have different rewards rates, right? Yep. Um, the idea there is, you know, say if, if one rich person is getting 5% cash back on their, on their groceries and someone poorer is not, that, that's kind of where, where the discrepancy is. Um, it, when you get into the details, it doesn't really work out all that cleanly. Firstly, because 
rewards cards aren't actually that exclusive to the wealthy. Um, but secondly, that incentivization of wealthier spenders um, to put more transactions and ergo more interchange fees on their cards means that the risk profile, or, or rather these companies have the resources to take on consumers with worse risk profiles. So these wealthy people are essentially allowing companies to extend lines of credit to people who previously might not have qualified for them. So um, alternatively, you could say that the rich are subsidizing the poor um, in the sense of people with higher credit scores are making it more feasible from a risk tolerance perspective for these banks to issue credit. Interesting take, but but it makes sense. I mean, I look, I'm old enough, and I don't know, maybe you're old enough to remember this too, but there was a time where, where credit cards were, like, I knew my folks had a couple of credit cards, but like they were for emergencies. I mean, like we'll freeze them in a block of ice in the freezer, and if it's a real emergency, you know, we'll thaw out the ice and, and use the credit card. But it seemed like um, very few people would use them just for day-to-day things, unless you were a traveler and it was safer than carrying cash. But we have uh, we've come full circle to where. Uh, it's it's the way to do business. In fact, there are some businesses that absolutely won't do business with you. If you rent a car or you want a hotel room, you know you need to have a credit card of some kind. Absolutely, it, it's become so ingrained into our culture, and there are a few reasons for that. So, there used to be that emergency perception, right? Um, the idea being that you'd put purchases on it that you couldn't make out of cash. And then they're carrying with it the implication that you're not going to pay off that statement when it comes due in about a month. Um, financial education has really improved since the kind of initial dawn of credit cards between the 60s and the 80s when they, they really kind of blew up as a product. But, um, you know, it's very easy to never pay interest if you know what you're doing or you're only spending money on things that you ha- could have paid for in cash. Um, now, like you said, they're so darn convenient. They're convenient for multiple players in the transaction. Now, obviously, they're convenient for Visa and MasterCard because they're making money off of them. But like you said, it's safer for the individual not to be walking around with cash. And if somebody mugs you for your credit card, you can get it canceled and replaced and change the number in less than five minutes. So it's easier for individuals. Yep. Um, and for smaller businesses um, who can't afford security, et cetera, um, it's oftentimes easier to deal with than cash, even for them, even with the interchange fees. Like some sources estimate that um, smaller retailers without uh, security provisions, when you factor in elements like just simple human error or cash theft by employees or robbery, oftentimes they're playing a, uh, paying a, a low double-digit percentage premium on cash transactions, which is actually much more than they're paying on credit card transactions. Interesting. So, um, it's more convenient for most players in this space anyway that, um, you know, I think complaining, complaining about it that supposedly the, the poor subsidizing the rich is that's really isolating a couple factors without looking at the big picture and painting a, a, a misleading idea in people's heads. But you got to admit, that's a catchy phrase if you were like a politician wanting to step in and <clears throat> fix things, you know. Um, talk to me about the credit card competition act again. What's the likelihood of this? particular piece of legislation um, coming through. Right. So, like you said, this is it's, it's more a political attack than a, than a real world one. Um, under the, the uh, 
ultimate motivation of that op-ed was to support the Credit Card Competition Act. It is a bipartisan bill um, sponsored by Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois and Republican Roger Marshall of Kansas. They essentially want to force any bank that offers a, a credit product to offer at least one non-Visa or MasterCard payment network as a possibility on those credit cards. So Chase Bank, for example, right now offers both Visa and MasterCard. They would say, well, they also need to do a co-branded American Express or Discover card. Um, it would also uh, disallow Visa and MasterCard specifically from uh, creating any sort of exclusivity agreement or from using any security feature that other card networks, typically Amex or Discover, don't have. So it, it disincentivizes elements of security that have made credit cards so great, um, while essentially serving as a, a handout to big box retailers. What does that mean? Well, the idea, the, the supposed idea is that this creation of competition would lower interchange fees that I mentioned earlier, those swipe fees. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Amex's and Discover's are actually higher than Visa and MasterCard at the moment. Hmm. Um, but on top of that, um, places like, say, big box retailers that um, you know can afford to work with all four card networks um, don't really have the cost savings that they maybe would have gotten by only providing those cheaper networks. So this is ultimately going to hurt small businesses um, consumers who like to make smart decisions with credit cards um, and the credit card networks themselves um, while benefiting, say, big box cookie cutter retailers like Best Buy at Walmart. Um, it's kind of transparent. You know, Dick Durbin is kind of known as being very friendly with those organizations. Um, and so unfortunately, this is really more a manifestation of politics than smart policy. Well, it's uh, it's a good example of where the market could solve a problem, or government could step in and, you know, hammer a one size fits all solution on everybody that wouldn't necessarily work for everybody. But um, we'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Um, we're talking with Mike Viola. He's the head of analytics at the Foundation for Economic Education, as well as a contributor to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Mike, where can people find you on social media? Sure, you can find me um, on Twitter at MF, as in Frank, underscore Viola. Someone stole the not underscore <laughs> version from me. Um, right, or you can find my stuff on the Young Voices website. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm very happy to welcome Abdullah Tijani to the program. Abdullah, I believe this is your first time on the show. So for the sake of people who are meeting you for the very first time, please tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. My name is Abdullah Tijani. I'm a journalist and writer from Nigeria. I'm a Young Voices contributor. I thank you and I'm really glad to be here with you today. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And I, I was reading your article on realclearworld.com about how philanthropic contributions keep Africa poor. And I have to admit, that headline really grabbed me because I was thinking, really? 
But that's charitable contributions. But you you make a, a very strong case, and I think a correct one, that uh, the the money that people are donating to Africa um, for uh, feeding a starving population, for instance, is only doing limited good. Why is it only doing limited good? Exactly. The problem is that we we tend to focus more on uh, the surveys and not look at what is really happening on our ground. You know, when we have uh, a quite number of large population of people that rely on these aids, you know, it tends to do very little things and tends to do very little problem, you know, and we have a wide area of uh, problem in, in the continent. So these contributions cannot really solve the problem of the African people. And we have evidence to show from the past decade that over a trillion dollars sent to the continent has not lifted the people out of poverty. So we need to really recheck the strategy and look at the way forward. I, I love the way that you you approach this too because it's look the money's nice but it really doesn't do anything to solve the problem long term. Um, in your article, you talk about the need for for African nations and communities to learn how to build their own economies. Why? What? What is standing in the way of them building those economies now? Is it just the fact that there's there's money that is sometimes that reaches them, or um, or do they do they need to be taught? What What is it that holds them back? Yes, exactly. I, I think the fact that African nations can now you know turn to anywhere outside the continent to borrow money, you know, limited their ability to think outside the box and look at a way to you know, solve their problem themselves. You know, when there's a crisis in the country or in, in, in anywhere in the continent, for instance, let's say climate change, they always ask for outsiders to pay for damages, to do this, to do that. And, you know, the first problem of African people is poverty. You know, when, when you leave the people out of poverty, then they know how to solve the, their problem. So, but there is, this, there is no commitment from the African government to do this because there is and his way to get money. Yeah, and, and I want to make a distinction, too. When we talk about uh, financial aid, we're primarily talking about governments giving financial aid. Um, and I don't know, is there is there a distinction? Do, do private charities, uh, does the money go further? Or is it is it doing kind of the same thing that the government uh, aid is, is doing in, in making people dependent? Yes, it's doing the same thing what's government uh, fund is doing, maybe it's coming from private entity, maybe it's coming from any government entity, international groups, is doing the same thing from what we've seen in the continent. So who are the nations that donate the most right now to Africa? And and uh, and who is telling them, hey, maybe you shouldn't be donating quite so much in, in foreign aid money? Okay, the thing is, we have we have uh, we have governments like the EU. We have governments like the USA that donate to African countries. And these donations we are talking about don't, do not necessarily come in form of uh, let's say monetary assistance or let's say uh, financial assistance. Sometimes it comes in, in form of loan. You know, Nigeria, for instance, find it easy to go out and borrow money than to look for a way to to fund its budget. So Nigeria has high budget since the past three, four years that it tends to look at outside to fund the budget. 
So because there is always a way to get money, and because these these nations give them money, that's to say, okay, this is a financial contribution, this is a you know humanitarian assistance uh, for them to fund their budget. So it is not necessarily to be uh, the government, even private entities, private uh, uh, individuals, I mean private corporations also contribute to this. And uh, are there those who are resistant to the idea of uh, of policy overhauls in in Africa? I would assume that some of the the um, some of the people in authority, perhaps those who may be corrupted, uh, would be benefiting very nicely from from the money, and and would uh, it wouldn't really work in their interest to to see the people become uh, more independent through building their own economies. Yes, exactly. Because when we are saying that government should look inward to generate funds to fund its budget. We are looking at uh, government, let's say, government taxing the people, getting money from the taxes, but a lot of these companies have been taxed already, and they are even living the country. If you check my uh, um, my essay, you will see where I analyzed where Nigerian government in order to fund its budget because it's now in debt trap, debt to trust. So it tends to uh, levy more taxes on companies. And these companies are now uh, closing their businesses and leaving the country. So it is not a good deal with, uh, uh, I mean, the politicians and people in power when we say they should look inward. So that's why they find it more convenient to look outside, you know, to get the money. Wow. Um, do I have to ask, do, do the politicians in these countries that, that give this foreign aid, um, how do they benefit? I, there has to be a reason that they keep doing this as well, even if it's it's not uh, uh, pulling the, the recipient nations you know, out of poverty. How do the people in, in governments where they're donating the money benefit? Okay. You know, this, uh, this foreign aid, when it comes from a loan, for instance, it's is to fund a particular uh, project or to fund a particular project. So that kind of uh, that kind of uh, instance now, the governments are the one or the politicians are the one that receive the money to fund the project. So instead, you know, this this an easy money, and you know, we just know that it's it is being implemented for a particular project, even when that particular project is not necessary in the country. So, um, just out of curiosity, um, let's talk about uh, climate change. I understand that climate change funding um, or ecological funds plays a very, very big role in in money that that is being donated. Um, is are are these nations in Africa? Do, do they feel duty bound to accept you know the the climate uh, climate uh, directed monies as as opposed to uh, you know private enterprise coming in building factories and so forth? You mean, do they feel bound to collect the money? They are, they are even the one requesting for the money. You know, climate change and climate funds was uh, implemented in COP27, I think. And during that time, you know, there, are, there, were, there were calls, there were agitations in Africa that uh, Africa is feeling the impact of climate change more than developed nations that really contributed most to the global warming and so on and so forth. And now, after the, but what we should understand is that we are just being introduced. We, we are just introducing another humanitarian begging pool to the African people because this will uh, cause African people to continue asking, asking, and asking. 
without you know looking inwards to solve their problems themselves. And the issue we have in Nigeria, for instance, is that even though uh, there is an ecological fund that is dedicated to address this kind of problem, that fund has not really helped the people. It has not limited. It has not uh, limited the the uh, impact these people feel, especially the poor people. So what would be different if we have loss and damage fund trooping into the country? What would be different? Okay. We are unfortunately uh, running out of time here. Um, I had many more questions. I wanted to know about China's involvement. Is China taking great interest? Perhaps another time we can talk about this. We're, we're visiting with Abdullah Tijani. He's a contributor at Young Voices and a journalist in Nigeria. Uh, is, where can people find you on social media? Where can they follow your work? Okay. They can follow my work on Twitter at Abdullah8Yani. Very good. Thank you so much, and I hope we talk again soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Jeff Luz back to the show. Jeff, uh, some people are meeting you for the very first time. We know you're a Young Voices contributor, but tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yeah, oh, it's great to be back, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm also, I am a Young Voices contributor, but I'm also a policy assistant at C3 Solutions. Uh, that is the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions. We are a DC-based uh, free market think tank that's promoting solutions for energy security, climate change, environmental solutions. Well, I'm excited to talk about uh, Poland's nuclear energy renaissance. And, and maybe this is because I have been kind of keyed in here lately on these small modular nuclear reactors. And I don't know a lot about them other than they, they show a lot of promise. And it sounds like, like Poland is one of the nations that is going to be uh, leading out on putting those to use. Tell me about uh, the development of these reactors. Tell me about why Poland is, uh, is embracing nuclear energy. Yeah. Um, so Poland has historically been super reliant on coal for its energy production, um, but in the wake uh, and natural gas. But in the wake of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Poland, like much of Europe, has struggled with energy security. Um, so they're looking to promote um, small modular reactors as well as traditional light water fi uh, fission nuclear reactors, which are the you know the big ones that you see on the market today. Um, in an effort to increase their energy security, but also decrease their uh, carbon emissions. So what I've noticed and what's been happening is a lot of American SMR companies, small modular reactor companies, such as uh, NuScale, um, Westinghouse is developing one, and so is Last Energy. Uh, all three of those companies are American companies, but they're testing out their technology in Poland because Poland is so receptive um, and they have the regulatory structure to do it. Wow, how interesting. Is is the U.S. ever going to catch up regulatory-wise to Poland to where we can start looking at this as a, as a viable alternative? I I mean, I certainly hope so. We've uh, we've sent a lot of funding through Department of Energy programs, which, are, which is good funding, um, to the de development and deployment of next-generation reactors, um, like the TerraPower reactor, 
which is going to be deployed in uh, Wyoming on the site of an old retired coal plant. Um, X Energy is also developing a reactor. Um, so we're getting the funding for it. Um, New Scale just got their reactor design approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the first time that that's happened. So we're starting to pick it up. Um, we got the funding. We have the private sector interest in it. We have, I think, a lot of people are interested in it just from a commercial viability standpoint. Um, but like you said, we're kind of lagging a bit in terms of environmental reviews, nuclear licensing, and things like that. So what is it that sparked this in, in Poland? I mean, besides, you know, they, obviously they and the rest of Europe need need energy. But um, I'm, I've been struck, at least in the times the, that I have traveled in Europe, that there are very green conscious, you know, kind of uh, uh, union of, of, of European states. But um, it seems like nuclear would have been a hard sell. But it, it sounds like Poland is on board. I know Germany, at least at one point, relied on a lot of nuclear power. So did the French. Um, why is this? Why are we? Why are we so slow to take it up here in America as well? Uh, that's such a good question. Um, it's. I think it's mostly kind of misguided safety concerns. Um, you had Three Mile Island in the seventies, uh, Chernobyl, and then Fukushima in twenty twelve. All three of those are. I mean, super unlikely. They didn't actually. It didn't actually lead to as much radiation caused deaths as a lot of people would lead you to believe. Um, so I think it has a lot to do with that. There's also market forces with natural gas being cheaper uh, to generate than nuclear power. Um, so there's things like that. Uh, and like I said, we also have just kind of have a stale regulatory state that isn't super. They're more focused on, I think, mitigating disaster than they are in advancing innovation. And and just how big of an innovation are these small small modular reactors? I mean, this is a pretty big leap from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, and it's I think it's it's huge because a lot of the challenges that you see with the traditional uh, light water fission reactors, um, a lot of that has to do with like, like the construction costs. It takes a while to build. It takes a while to get the permits, um, and it's notoriously it goes over budget. It, it takes longer than the developers originally say it will. Um, so these modular reactors, they have the ability to be scaled up faster um, than what we have on the market today. A lot of them can be built offsite and they can just be deployed right there. Um, and even though nuclear energy is historically one of the safest forms of energy that we have, it's safer than natural gas, coal, even wind and solar. Um, these modular reactors have even like more advanced safety features, which is really cool. Like uh, a few of them, it's it's quite literally impossible for a meltdown to occur. Uh, so these are these are huge developments. They can be deployed in small rural areas. They can you know power they can power homes cleanly. I think it's it's a great innovation. I think you know soon it's going to be really taking over. Okay, and Poland is leading the way, at least if, if the U.S. is wanting to pay attention, we could probably learn a few things from them. Um, are, are there other countries? I think you mentioned China in your article, and, and I think of the immense population of China. It would, I guess it would make sense that they would be looking more closely at nuclear power as well. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why the U.S. kind of has to take this more seriously. We're lagging behind uh, China and Russia in this in this field, which... Uh, that hurts potential energy security in the future. It hurts our global uh, competitiveness as well. Uh, China, I believe it, it's they're looking to approve like close to 150 reactors within the next few years. 
Wow. Um, which is more than what the U.S. has on its fleet today, which is around 100. I think it's about 99. Um, so China is taking it seriously. I mean, you can kind of call into question <laughs> the relationship that like the big government has with that. So, <laughs> you know, did the ends justify the means? Maybe not. Um, but the U.S. can certainly pay attention to that, pay attention to what Poland's doing. Um, and just embrace more modern regulations, um, a better licensing structure, uh, and just, you know, reducing that regulatory red tape that's really hindering innovation. No, that that makes sense. And and that was actually the, the next thing I wanted to ask you is, okay, so what has to change here? Um, you mentioned environmental impact statements can take, you know, years to, to get out there. Um, how do we streamline that process? And, and who's going to stand in the way of that? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. There's the the biggest component is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC. Um, in 2019, I believe it was, they were ordered by Congress to kind of develop a new framework uh, to speed up the licensing of these advanced reactors. And recently, they came back with that framework, but it just wasn't very good. Uh, it borrowed largely from what they were doing before with these radiation standards that don't actually protect the public. Um, I mean, radiation's it, it's a very taboo uh, topic, but the fact of the matter is radiation is all around us. Um, and what nuclear energy emits, the waste that it emits, it's very safe forms. It doesn't cause any public harm. Um, so a lot of the regulations have to do with that. Uh, but yeah, basically what happened is they came back with these new uh, reforms that, that don't speed up the development of it. Um, there was a poll conducted with a bunch of advanced reactor companies, and I think it was somewhat of like 85% preferred the old regulations versus the new ones. So it's it's addressing that. Um, it's addressing the process uh, under NEPA, which actually the Congress is voting on this this week through HR1. Um, so yeah, it's just modernizing regulations um, and kind of empowering the private sector to do its thing. Jeff, is it going to make a huge difference, though, when people can say, look, we can look at the last 10 years of what Poland has been doing with these small modular reactors, and you know, they can point to the safety record, they can point to the efficiency, the uh, the cost effectiveness, and so forth. Is, is it just a matter of we need to get somebody with a, a decent enough track record to, to finally have people admit, yeah, it does work? Maybe, maybe we should lighten yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and actually, luckily, it seems like there's a bit of a growing bipartisan support to advance nuclear, which is good. Um, so, I mean, certainly Poland is going to show that it's super safe. America has shown that it's super safe. Nuclear energy is. Um, and just as like, you know, as Republicans kind of deal with energy security challenges and they want to clean up the environment and you also have Democrats who want to address climate change. Um, I think that nuclear energy is definitely going to grow in popularity. At least that's my hope. <laughs> no, I, I hope that too. In fact, every time I pay my electric bill, <laughs> I'm always thinking, boy, if, there, if there's a cheaper way or a more efficient way to do this where it doesn't cost as much. And I think that's true in a lot of places across the U.S. I know California in particular, energy costs are exorbitant, and, and yet they still, as high as they're paying for electricity, have to deal with rolling brownouts and so forth. It just seems like it, it could be a real problem solver uh, if people can get around that fear of, of nuclear power. 100%. Yeah, it can provide reliable, affordable, carbon-free power to consumers. I mean, it, it checks all the boxes, really. Now, the next big thing is going to be, uh, how do we uh, how do we get that technology into cars? So far, Mr. Fusion hasn't happened, but uh, 
You know, I, I see the day of fossil fuel cars uh, is, is well, they're, they're definitely numbered. Um, Jeff, tell us where people can find you on social media. Where can they follow you? Yeah, you can uh, follow the work that I'm doing, that C3 is doing um, at C3Newsmag.com. Uh, there we do daily updates on what the private sector and the conservative movement is doing to address energy, environment, and climate change. All right, we're talking with Jeff Luce. Thank you so much for being our guest, and I hope we talk again soon. Great. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today, and I'm happy to welcome back to the show Leslie Corbley, who is a Young Voices contributor as well as... uh, Leslie, you'll have to remind me of, of your. Uh, you'll have to remind me of your your official title with uh, Libertas. I mean, you're the the technology uh, policy analyst. Am I even close? No, uh, well, well, kind of. <laughs> I'm the privacy policy analyst. Privacy. So Sorry. I don't really handle anything that you're good. You're fine. Anything that overlaps with um with privacy interests. So that does often end up being a lot of uh, technology. So yeah, more and more, this is kind of becoming a synonymous thing. If where technology goes, privacy concerns go as well. And uh, I know that there's talk right now about a uh, kind of a uh, internet form of the, the Patriot Act being debated in, in, uh, you know, the national legislature about, uh, you know, reigning in TikTok. You know, that's one thing to keep an eye on. You have uh, been studying something very uh, close to home in Utah, and that is finding that sweet spot between digital privacy and security and and talk to me a little bit about uh, about some of the concerns that are involved and then talk to me about the bill um, that uh, has been proposed that would that would seek to establish the the right kind of balance sure so the utah state legislature did pass a bill that um, actually codifies warrant requirements for a geofence search so a geofence search is one of these things in technology that has popped up um, is widely used by law enforcement across the country. A geofence is where law enforcement draws a virtual boundary around a crime scene, and then they make third-party requests to Google or T-Mobile, third-party technology companies, requesting user data in that location during um, or near the time of the crime. And so generally, there are a three-step process. At first, they're looking for they call it an anonymized data. It's disputed how anonymous data can really be in some of these contexts. But um, the gist of it is they're looking for um, the device that's connected to the crime. Right. Uh, And so, of course, from the privacy standpoint, you don't want to see too broad of warrants uh, of searches that are able to be conducted um, on a large number of individuals who may or may not have any reason to be connected to the commission of a crime, right? So they're sort of inherently very broad searches, particularly the the beginning stages. You're just looking for all devices in a specific location. Now, depending on how how large that boundary they said is and the density of the urban area that could encompass a large number of people. So there have of course been questions about the constitutionality of these searches. So what Utah did really is be more proactive by ensuring that a judge actually has to review these searches at every step of the process. Right now, I believe Utah is the only state that's passed um, a bill on this issue through both chambers. Um, 
to ensure that there's some kind of uh, judicial oversight of the process. So that's that's one thing the bill does. Another interesting thing the bill does is it actually requires the warrant affidavit come with a notice to the judge describing the um, process that's used for a, essentially describing what a geofence search is, because it is different than searches in the physical context, right? So basically uh, it's to alert the judge that it's a broader search um, than, than is otherwise conducted because judges are looking at just a, a, an incredible amount of, of warrants, <laughs> right? When, when they come across their desk and most of them are not of the geofence uh, type. So it's mostly to ensure that when they get that across their desk, they may, uh, you know, note that they need to do a little more looking into that warrant specifically before signing off. You mentioned in your You mentioned in your article the the other states that uh, have have introduced legislation or have legislation actually barring the practice. And again, I just want to revisit um, on the one hand, yes, bar it entirely, but that's that may be short-sighted. Talk to me about why um, public safety has to be a part of that equation. It can't just be, yep, we're going to just ban this outright. Well, my concern with barring outright is the long-term feasibility of that type of legislation. You know, once there's, we've seen, for instance, San Francisco do things like say, we want to bar the use of facial recognition during the heat of, you know, um, maybe a racial justice event across the country where they're concerned with, you know, over-policing or abuse in policing tactics. And then when there's a crime wave, they they roll that right back and may even implement worse for reforms moving forward. Uh, so I think when you look at blanket bans, the concern is what happens when inevitably those fall out of public favor and politicians um, are pressured to perhaps not just roll back um, the ban, but engage in conduct that would potentially have been far worse. And um, yeah, that's essentially the the, the gist of it. Uh, and I, I think that, that that's muted by having um, the, the, the kind of consensus bill Libertas was able to push through um, or was, was supported and the Utah legislature pushed through is more uh, long-term viable um, for the long-term future. Uh, so I think that that's, that's some, one thing to note. And second thing to note is that the bill actually does also require a heavy dose of um, reporting requirements so that law enforcement is required to report how many of these searches they're conducting and how many of the requested searches are actually um turn into warrants, right? How, how often are judges signing off on these on these searches? And that way, it's that's designed to ensure that, let's say, the legislature looks at this issue down the road and sees that there's further reform needed. Um, so it's really designed to kind of monitor this process and this practice since it is fairly new. I want to say it was really back in 2016 that the practice really kicked off. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the long-term viability of blanket bans, I don't think is there. I would say that's my biggest concern. How does law enforcement react to this? I, I know there are a couple of different ways. You know, um, obviously they they want to be able to do their jobs efficiently as possible. Sometimes that means that uh, you know they have to be reminded that there are limits as to how far they can go to do their jobs. Was there any pushback from law enforcement circles in Utah um, with with this bill that uh, Libertas helped to pass? Sure. So this was consensus legislation. The issue has been ongoing here in Utah for a few years, uh, and we worked heavily with law enforcement and um, stakeholders during the interim process to ensure that, um, you know, everyone kind of knew what was in the legislation. And there have been a lot of conversations during the interim time period when legislators are able legislators are able to get a lot of really good work done on some of these bills. So that that's how, how the process looked here. As far as um, nationwide, my hope is that states really get ahead of this because the best way to ensure that practices are, um, are appropriate and not 
potentially not being technology is potentially not being used to an abusive manner by law enforcement is to ensure that there's some kind of codified statutory requirement in place and to talk about these things up front and really clear the air. Um, Because I think that if you have a, it's a very different conversation, like you just noted, when law enforcement has been engaging in a specific practice and you're asking them to halt that practice rather than uh, trying to set standards for a practice that perhaps is not even normative yet. So I think that there needs to be a lot more conversations both in the geofence space, but really more broadly in what's called the reverse warrant space. So a geofence warrant is one type of a reverse warrant, which is really any warrant that's seeking information um, that has been collected and is amassed in a large database of, of broadly speaking, human behavior. So in this context, it would be uh, your human behavior is where you're located. It could be your keyword searches. It could be other information that could be gleaned from online. But basically, the gist of it is you've engaged in some kind of conduct that has been uh, recorded in some kind of a digital format, and now that's being requested um, later on to to assist in solving crimes, which, again, is is not inherently a problem. Frankly, keyword searches have been been used for quite some time to crack, um, you know, murder cases and whatnot. Uh, but the difference here is how broad the searches can be and how many users they can encompass before you even have a suspect in mind. So the particularity requirement is is really what we're most concerned about. Well, and and privacy is one of those areas where there is constantly friction between the citizen and and government. I mean, it's it's never really a settled matter, is it? It's really not because again, uh, you you have these touchy questions of how many people, sh- how many people's devices should be swept up in a geofence search, right? That's that's one of the things you're going to have to haggle about because you don't want, say, I mean, for instance, in New York, if you draw a boundary around even uh, a small boundary, that 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 looks like a lot more people encompassed in that search than in rural Alabama. So you have to take those things into consideration. Um, and then again, as it relates to other online activities, how much of a chilling effect are these types? of search is going to have on speech or association or other conduct that would otherwise be uh, perfectly legal. Well, I'm grateful there are people like yourself out there who are paying attention and in those areas where, you know, a gentle correction may be needed or even a a serious correction, you know, you're there to offer that kind of counsel and and insight. And, you know, just I want to brag on on Libertas here for just a moment. you guys have been you've been absolutely essential in getting some really great reforms passed that limit government to its proper role protecting our rights and help keep people free and and I got to tip my hat to you there there are a lot of organizations trying to do it uh, but you guys are succeeding in spades well thank you we do our best <laughs> yep leslie tell people where they can find you online your social media or any other uh, resources where they can follow your writing Absolutely. So uh, my website is lesliecorbley.com. That houses all of my content. I publish, pretty much cross publish everything to that site. Of course, there's a Libertas, uh, libertas.org, where you can find my work. I'm on LinkedIn under Leslie Corbley. I'm on Twitter um, at Corbley Leslie, or you can just type my name, Leslie Corbley, into the search bar and I'll pop right on up. Uh, so those are the major platforms I use for now, and we may be expanding into others, but that's where you can find me. Sounds great. Thanks again. It's great visiting with you. Thanks, Brian.